Hello, what the fintech listeners. Alex here, just taking some time at the top of the show to talk to you about Comarch. Every day, all day, you benefit from the help of new technologies and smart solutions, from the apps on your phone to the cards in your wallet. But now you can provide your SME clients with a solution that gives them real contextual support in the running of their businesses. Get in touch with Comarch today about its SME banking solutions. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor of Fintech Futures and your host. And joining me this week are Ruby Hinchliffe, our roving reporter at Fintech Futures. Hi, everyone. And Ritten Gohill, partner and, excuse me, partner and co-founder at compliance and risk technology firm Sphonic. Hello, everyone. Nice to uh, uh, be here today. And thank you very much to uh, Alex and the team for inviting me. Thank you for, for coming coming on for the, the show, Ritten. It's, it's great to have you on. Uh, this week's episode, we're talking about whether fintech has grown too cool for school. Um, are regulators struggling to keep up with fast-moving firms trying to capture a digitally native audience? All these questions and more answered later. But first up, as usual, we're doing our Week in Numbers segment. We've gone out and found stories with some interesting figures in their headlines to talk about. Uh, you're our guest, so you have the honour of going first. Um, what is the Week in Numbers story that you'd like to talk about? $850 million is, is the big number. And uh, that, for those who uh, haven't followed the news this week, is the uh, the princely sum that MasterCard ended up paying for Ekata to acquire their business. So, look, Ekata, great, great product, great business, um, great leadership in, in Rob, uh, who I've had the pleasure of knowing over the years. Um, they're a partner of ours uh, as well. We, Esphonic, um, as a uh, orchestrator of identity services um, use a Carter with some clients and it's a really interesting play for MasterCard I think um, when I looked at this I was um, somewhat taken aback but not surprised larger if you look at some recent acquisitions by MasterCard um, they've obviously uh, looked at themselves as being a facilitator of uh, payments and services more broadly, um, as opposed to being a card payment scheme, right? So they, they've definitely evolved from um, the years um, of, of, of just being in the world of the issuance and acceptance of, of cards. And, and that obviously, you know, is aligned to things like buying Vocalink and, uh, you know, moving, uh, you know, much deeper into the open banking world as an example. And if you also followed some of the recent trends, their launch of a new digital identity service, um, I can't remember the name of it now, um, but there's a MasterCard digital ID product that they've recently enabled in the market. Um, the acquisition of Ecarte is an interesting one. Um, it looks like it's going to provide uh, a capability across a whole range of different use cases in the um, uh, services that MasterCard want to release. They've talked about open banking, they talked about digital ID, they talk about um, uh, PSD2, uh, etc. And, you know, the technology, I think, is flexible enough to uh, have a role in all those different environments. Um, it's got the ability to provide um, uh, and, and augment 
um, a regulatory level KYC check um, in particular. So it's not, I mean, they will themselves say it's not a regulatory level KYC check, but it's got the ability to help provide additional assurance that you're dealing with um, a reason, a reasonably um, secure identity um, as you um, orchestrate and waterfall identity checks as part of a, an onboarding process. And um, it's definitely got a significant global footprint. So when we've looked at the data, uh, its coverage on a global level is quite strong. They've um, recently opened up a, an office out in Asia, which obviously has a you know a real opportunity for them to uh, to grow out. Uh, run by a good friend of mine there called Tom Donnelly, um, and I'm sure it's going to be a very interesting, potentially very successful marriage. Um, the number is the number is a big one, eight fifty million um, US dollars. Um, I've got no idea of what their sort of metrics look like and, and their financials, but um, congrats to them. You know, well done. Um, you know, they've been around the fraud risk management industry for a number of years under the old name of White Pages Pro. They've sort of played on the periphery, uh, I guess, for a long time. But you know, they've just they've lost. Um, I don't know six six to twelve months of really. Um, seized the opportunity in the market and, and identified where they saw themselves fitting, and as a result, um, you know, have uh, landed the big prize. So, uh, you know, uh, big kudos to those guys, and uh, uh, congrats once again from you know myself and the team at Esponic. Exactly, I think that uh, it's really about that. Um, they'll, they'll be integrating that Pro Insight uh, solution, I believe it is, that Carter has uh, based on artificial intelligence uses data points and indicators for decision making making all that all that good stuff um, and I know that Mastercard had a trio of parts in the end of 2020 so it's, it's been on the march and it included uh, buying up uh, if only which is a marketplace firm uh, Cytegic or Cytegic maybe uh, authentication company and um, of course uh, Finicity as well for open banking and borrow uh, a term from from Zoolander and show my age identity identity verification is so hot right now um, we've seen uh, we've seen raises of uh, $69 million for Verif, $150 million for Jumio, $100 million for, for Socure. That's just in the first few months of 2021. We, um, obviously, like you said, this is a, a huge, a huge number um, uh, and a, a real indicator of how um, integral identity uh, verification is becoming to the financial services space. Absolutely, absolutely, and and it's it's also an interesting um, direction um, for you know them as a card scheme because they're obviously um, you know acquiring an asset that's you know has a lot of PII personal data which you know is, is something card schemes uh, are, are fairly new to because you know they've historically been around the messaging uh, of payment instructions but to acquire an asset that's got um, you know, a whole range of different data attributes and credentials that can be reused, uh, recalibrated into different use cases is actually quite uh, an interesting place to be. So, so yes, I mean, I think, you know, they're seizing on the fact that uh, digital ID is going to be the big, um, hot solution over the next, you know, 10, you know, 10 to 15 to 20 years. I mean, it's going to be the way um, we are going to be identifying ourselves in different environments and um, to have access to those credentials on a on a global level gives them quite a lot of flexibility in how 
um, they might use them and along with other acquisitions they've done you know they can sort of uh, gradually build these um these blocks around identity which could be quite powerful um in asserting your identity in, in many different environments yeah i was just going to add um like uh like Rishan said it's a, it's a big number um you know, when you look at the Finicity um, acquisition, that was 825 million. So it's even bigger than that one. And, you know, if you think like last year, we were talking a lot about open banking um, and especially about Visa and MasterCard and how they needed to evolve in order to kind of change with the, with the times and how open banking was moving from sort of data to payments and kind of encroaching on their space. Um, so it's, it's an interesting to now see that this acquisition um, being even sort of higher priced than than the open banking one they made last year, um, and then I think yeah, again echoes what Ritam was saying about how it is going to be a really big um, area of investment over the sort of next five ten years. Um, and I mean we've seen a lot of companies come together on digital identity. So you know like like Ritam sort of um, cited, Maskell's got its own digital identity product, but then we've seen companies um, come together. So like it's about a year ago now, um, sort of the beginning of May last year. Um, MasterCard, IBM, R3, Accenture were just some um, private firms to, to kind of come together and try and um, come up with some kind of digital identity uh, system um, that could be used on sort of national scales um, or, you know, across industries and, and sort of implemented by governments. But it's it's really interesting. And, and I think that we're only just seeing this, the start of it. And you know, it will be interesting to see who actually architects it and which kind of sectors or firms take the lead, especially when we're looking at digital identity from, say, you know, national level um, and how it's adopted. I think we're in a very embryonic stage at the moment. Um, but yeah, these sorts of acquisitions are really interesting because it points to which kinds of firms are going to be at the, the sort of tipping point of, of how it then decides to shape itself. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, you'll have also noticed that the UK government recently um, ran a consultation around the uh, potential standards that might support a digital ID program in the UK. You know, there's um, similar activities going on in various parts of the world. Um, there are, you know, active digital ID programs in places like India and Estonia and, 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 and you know, and other sort of markets. It, it, it is, you know, the the way, as I said earlier, that people are going to be asserting themselves. And what digital ID, I guess, allows you to do, and certainly, you know, some of the things we do at Sphonic is around how we can, um, I guess, um, uh, orchestrate the use of identity based on the uh, requirements of the end user. So, you know, as, as I talked about before, PII is obviously quite important here, you know, that, you know, there's a, on the flip side, there's this real paranoia about having too much data and, you know, where that data is going. But with digital ID, you don't necessarily have to um, share all your data credentials to every single entity. Um, and therefore, it, it will be shareable on a case-by-case -case basis. And that would, you know, make a lot of sense. It would uh, reduce, you know, the use of data more broadly, meaning uh, the prospect of data breaches uh, start to gradually get removed. And, uh, you know, we move to a world of credentials where you can share your, uh, your, your, your token, your identity profile with um, trusted relying parties with a degree of confidence, knowing that they only, they only know and need to know as much as they need to, to be able to uh, obtain, obtain the service. Great. Well, from a um, 
from a exceedingly high number to a comparatively low one. My uh, my number this week is pretty small, as it's only forty nine. Um, yet that number holds uh, a fair amount of import for for retail trading firm Robinhood, which uh, because that's the the amount of lawsuits the company is currently facing in the wake of the GameStop saga earlier this year and other other issues alongside it. Um, it sort of came at the time as the uh, the firm is hitting back at uh, Massachusetts regulator um, uh, in early, in early April um, after the latter filed an administrative complaint against Robinhood um, in a blog post against the the mass filing. Robinhood calls the, secu- the Massachusetts Security Division. Um, which is designed to protect U.S. investors in the state, uh, elitist and harboring, uh, and I quote, an old way of thinking. Uh, and interestingly, this feud uh, this is a feud with the history. It traces back to last December um, when the state alleged Robinhood had actively marketed its products to investors uh, without their best interests. Robinhood is now suing the regulator to invalidate the filing, saying there's no legitimate basis in the claims. But anyway, back to that, that blog post I mentioned. Uh, Robin Hood says that the, the mass security division's attempt to prevent Massachusetts residents from choosing how they invest is elitist. We don't believe our customers are as naive as the security division paints them to be. Uh, the complaint reflects the old ways of thinking that new, younger, and more diverse investors don't have a place in the markets. Um, by trying to block Robin Hood, the division is attempting to bring its residents back in time. Um, it's another one of those stories. It's an interesting year so far for Robin Hood. Um, Ruby, I know you've covered this story and this is, this is in fact a story that you wrote. So, I mean, do you have anything else to add on this one? It's definitely been a, uh, yeah, to quote, to quote that Chinese proverb, an interesting times for Robin Hood and retail traders in particular. It really has when you look at like how much these different lawsuits have stacked up as well. I mean, obviously, yeah, you, you've given that number there of, of 49 and a lot of them kind of came in after the GameStop saga earlier this year, um, the majority, in fact. But there were ones sort of brewing, you know, since the beginning of last year um, when it kind of went through all these outages. So all these lawsuits are not necessarily all for the same thing. They're all kind of covering lots of different weak points of the fintech that have been highlighted over the last year or so. Um, and so far, the, the, the fintech seems to still be going strong. Um, people still seem to be using Robinhood despite kind of having to go through all this speculation. And it's, I think it's really interesting that it's had to go through this amount of speculation from so many different regulators, um, especially when you kind of look at, you know, you can't really compare it to any other fintech, to be honest. I can't think of any. I mean, the only companies I can think of that have been through the same sort of scrutiny that Robinhood has been through um, is Facebook or, um, you know, like, you know, similar social media platforms have been around for a lot longer. So like say Twitter as well, Um, but predominantly Facebook. So it's quite interesting that Robinhood, a much younger company um, in terms of its sort of trajectory to success um, has sort of been pulled under such um, such scrutiny. And I think it's setting a, a tone for how other fintechs will be able to operate in the space. But I think it's also quite specific to the US and US regulation um, and I think obviously that all changed when Biden came in and, um, you know, we're, we're seeing tighter regulation now than, than ever before on this sort of um, this sort of thing. Um, and I guess, yeah, it, it's one of those things where only time will tell. But I think that we've got kind of the, the guinea pig is Robin Hood. So we're kind of seeing what happens. But I guess whilst it's quite a wild comparison, we can kind of look to, to Facebook and I guess the main impact of, of the, you know, constant um, scrutiny from regulators has been sort of a slow disintegration of trust from consumers, but people still use it. 
um, you know, it's still there. It's just perhaps people's opinions have gone down on it. So I think that overall, um, that's kind of, I guess, maybe quite depressing, I guess, that, um, you know, companies can act however they want and people will still use them if they're useful, um, even if their opinions of them might have gone down. Um, but yeah, I, I see a lot of similarities between the two companies as of late. Um, but feel free to disagree with me on that one. <laughs> no, no, I think I think that's uh, incredibly fair, uh, 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 definitely a fair summary of, uh, of the situation for Robin Hood. And I'm, uh, I'm going to ask you to, to have a bit of topic with now, Ruby, and, and talk about uh, your weekly numbers, which is uh, decidedly different from mine. Yeah, sure. Um, so this is a, a story I kind of put together um, off the back of, you know, um, some piece of news, but then also an interview. Um, so I guess I, I was a bit cheeky. I kind of went with two numbers, um, 60% and 3000. So Santander announced um, last week that they've moved or migrated rather 60% of their infrastructure to the cloud now. And they're claiming that that's one of the sort of leading uh, figures across European banks in terms of, well, I guess, traditional banks, not neobanks, um, in terms of uh, moving infrastructure to the cloud. Um, they've also hired 3,000 new engineers in the last year. And I worked out that, so overall, they, they employ 16,500 software developers. So overall, they they count for about 8.6% of their overall employee count. Um which is difficult because there aren't a lot of stats to go by to compare this to other banks. Um, so it'd be interesting to see other banks come out and compete um, and perhaps come out and publish their rival press releases on this and see sort of how the, how the numbers compare. Um, you know, at the moment, Santander is claiming that they're leading based on um, sort of private consultant data, which they didn't uh, cite to me. So, um, so yeah, I'm yet to see a public public data on that one um, to prove that they are leading in that space. But um, I thought it, it sounded relatively impressive. You know, over the last two years, they've moved 200 servers to the cloud every working day, um, which sounds like a lot. Um, <laughs> I mean, but I, again, I haven't done it myself, so I wouldn't know. Um, and you know, that's all part of their 20 billion euro digital transformation. And, and when I spoke to Dirk Marsleff, the um, global chief operating technology officer over at Santander, um, it was interesting because he said um, that actually, you know, one of the, the big reasons why they've been doing this is to attract top talent. Um, so it's not necessarily just a pressure from stakeholders or a pressure from the times to get digital. It's also wanting to attract the best engineers and obviously, if they don't have the the technology, then then let, then engineers aren't going to want to work for them. So he made a big point of that. And so by 2023, the bank are hoping to have everything pretty much on a private or public cloud. I think about 25% of the bank systems sit on the public cloud at the moment, whilst the much bigger percentage, 75%, sit on private cloud, which I guess is another discussion around how comfortable banks feel with private versus public cloud. Um, but he reckons that that will kind of even out over the years as the bank gets more comfortable with the technology. So we will we will see. Um, but no, interestingly, Mars have also said that the transition to the cloud wasn't actually accelerated by the pandemic from a technical point of view. But actually, we saw a lot of banks that did technically um, migrate things faster because of the pressures of the pandemic and needing to act in a more agile fashion, especially in the US with you know distribution of PPE. Uh, loans, BPE loans and, and stimulus checks. It was all a bit stressful and chaotic when it first started. So 
yeah, um, they seem to have kept their cool by the sounds of it. Um, but yeah, you guys feel free to chip in on this one. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I think this was a great, a great interview, um, to be honest, not just because it was, it's on our site, but it is really good. Um, some huge numbers there. Uh, and I love it. 60% of overall IT infrastructure, like you said, I love the quote. He says, uh, that it's been smooth, but the remaining 40% will not be the easier 40%. And I like that quote. I think that's very, uh, prescient about the, uh, the way that banks move data between, uh, legacy and new systems. Yeah. 3000 engineers, 16,500 software developers. Uh, it's crazy. 20 billion dollars, 20 billion euros, sorry. 1.8 million video calls a day. It goes to show, um, really, uh, we, we report a lot about, you know, banks changing their systems at the back end, but these massive changes take a long time. They take a lot of money and also a lot of bravery, uh, in the hands of the, the C-level executives having to, to get this done, but it's going to be done. Um, and it's definitely interesting to see, like you said, the uh, the, sh- the uh, split between public and private cloud, and the fact that Santander has the uh, well, it has the it has the money and it has the capital to to have its own data centers, but it's also working with AWS and Azure as well. Um, and it's uh, definitely going to be interesting to see how those two cloud providers are distributed among the larger banks, especially as they move to uh, using these the massive uh, amounts of data available with these these private companies. Um, Ritten, I don't know if you've got any any thoughts on on these these huge digital transformations and, and what they mean, and can we will we see more of these eye watering figures in the near future? Do you think? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure we'll see many more. And you know, um, there there are, there are. I mean, I know there are. There are probably more to be announced. Um, you know, most of the large banks are embracing the cloud. You know, it's been uh, 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 you know a plan. I think I think you and I may have spoken about this previously, Alex, about these big. Digital transformation programs, which become um, for the you know the large incumbents, you know, a, a, a almost like a generational um, change program, right? They, they take ten to fifteen years or so worth of work to get them, uh, you know, to transition from you know the the, the tin box type environment in, 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 in into cloud. And you know, we've worked with some of the large banks over the years, and you know, the um, the challenges with some of the legacy tech are there, there to be seen, you know, there's, there's the ability to, you know, innovate and, and, and be able to um, support some of the exciting technologies and products that are, you know, coming out of the fintech, regtech space in particular uh, with ease uh, is, is a big problem if you don't have a, you know, cloud first strategy. And it's good to see this is where, you know, the banks are going um, and, uh, you know, long, long may continue in our world. Here we are in part two of the podcast. This is our more interview-styled section where we focus the discussion down into a specific industry topic or sector. We're going to dive into the main topic in just a moment, but first I'm going to give Ritten a chance to talk about his role as Phonic and uh, what he does at the company and what the company does itself. So take it away. Great. Thanks, Alex. So yes, Ritten Goel, I'm a, I'm a partner and director at Esphonic, um, sort of you know, part of the original sort of group who... Uh, been around since um, 2012. Um, we, I guess, set set out at the time to look at harmonising um, a lot of challenges that that we were seeing in the market. Uh, a lot of the guys came from a consultancy background. I came from a background of working in the industry at the likes of Visa, UK Payments, or 
apex as it was then and and i and i worked in the investigations space for many years with uh, numerous government agencies and you know i had always seen the challenge of the um, evolution in technology and the ability to be able to solve some of the integration challenges with technology uh, especially when you have um, the innovation in in fraud risk management reg tech products um, which continue to flourish and grow in the market as they do uh, and so back in 2012 um andy lee terry chow the original founder of vesphonic um came up with the idea of actually um creating a marketplace of data so you know they started out um advising a bunch of clients uh, who wanted to have a digital onboarding solution as an example um but wanted some advice on the solutions to use the, the strategies to, de- to deploy and, and how to hang it all together uh, and so whilst from a consultancy point of view they were advising clients on design um the technology was always done in-house and uh, what you'd find is that uh six months later the tech team would come back and say yeah we've we, we've built this process for onboarding but something's happened you know one of the vendors has changed the api structure or the vendors disappeared or a new vendors come into town which um potentially makes the whole um, solution a lot more slicker or you know uh, easier to um, to manage um, and so then bringing that new solution into the into the into the process then adds more time adds more delays and so that Andy and Terry had the crazy idea of putting all the stuff into the cloud and creating a marketplace back in 2012 we had about eight or nine providers plugged in today we have well over 85 uh, probably more than 90 now to be honest and uh, ultimately, it allows any one of our clients to be able to leverage um, the data they need, the services that they want through a very intelligent workflow platform that's um, designed and configured by our team to automate um, KYC, KYB, ML, transaction monitoring processes um, and um, automate uh, uh, as much as needs to be uh, and uh, profile fraud and risk at the earliest opportunity um so that's what we do is what we've been doing for the last nine years growing extremely fast um with some very exciting clients and um you know continue to uh, innovate with with new products and services so you know it's great to be part of the team and uh, i'm focused on driving you know the, the product into the market a lot of advocacy thought leadership um a lot of work with some of our strategic clients um to um, sell them the you know the good ship as phonic basically great well um we'll we'll dive into the main topic now i know i know twitter written that you, you're a massive fan of, of line of duty so i can only apologize unable to work into a, a line of duty reference into our title for today but um uh fintech is is uh especially these days is rubbing up against social media the influencer market and all kinds of flashy aspects of modern life um but as we've seen, there are some problem, problematic issues with that. But what, what do you think the risks are of a sector based around something like finance uh, and uh, you know, serious things like people's financial well-being uh, becoming overly trendy and relying on flashy gimmicks? Yeah, I mean, um, maybe I will do a shameless line and duty plug. You know, it's about one thing and one thing only, which is uh, you know providing a you know very robust regulated 
service, right? I mean, the fintechs that sort of uh, um, flood the market today, you know, um, many, many will take it seriously, many will make it, you know, the heart of their product, you know, security should be part of the selling points of a service um but many but many choose to skip around it and uh you know with that sort of um said you know you, you, a great example of that is where um you know many fintechs won't even have a qualified or professional compliance officer who's running um, the compliance program there they'll have somebody someone nominated to be a compliance person who's got the um um semi-part-time job of uh, managing compliance processes, which is not how this should be working. You know, you're, you're talking about, you know, a world where you're regulated by um, the likes of the SCA to provide and enable payment services and allow money to, you know, flow through, through the platform freely, as well as allow, you know, customers across the world to be onboarded um, and use the service. You've got to really take that seriously. You know, you've got a whole range of considerations around, you know, um, consumer protection, data protection, and this sort of GDPR-driven world we live in, and you know, the avoidance of financial crime. Um, and if you aren't, you know, developing and mapping a framework to manage all those potential risks, um, you know, with a with a serious, you know, enough hat and a serious enough set of thinking. Um, you really shouldn't be operating. And, and that's my very robust view of this stuff because I think there's just often too much of a, a, a thin line. I, I've just come across too many potential, um, you know, client opportunities with fintechs who just don't have uh, a, a well-defined uh, compliance team and program. And that shouldn't be the way this should be working. I, I get people want to get into the space, but, you know, you've got to think about compliance um, to avoid the pitfalls um, down the line, which obviously we've seen, you know, many examples of. Yeah, exactly, and you know, we, we often hear um, that some people try to both sides this argument in the fact that uh, it's a, and sort of pointing the finger sometimes at the retail market itself, not understanding in air quotes complex side of financial things. It's things like you know we spoke earlier about Robinhood, uh, retail traders not knowing exactly how the market works and getting ending up in trouble because of that but what what's your experience of the the fintech savviness of the retail market you know is it is it unfair to sort of turn this around and blame it on the users i mean look the i think i've alluded to earlier you know the i mean the, the large incumbent retail banks you know have been you know looking at digitizing for for many years you know and, and they are as we said very long-term programs and it's not not easy enough i'm not i'm not, I'm not trying to um, you know, feel sorry for large uh, banking corporations, but you know it's not easy for them to um, adapt their systems and embrace new technologies that quickly. There isn't just the element of um, you know technology evaluation and integration, but it's the whole governance program around putting new technology products in place, the change management, the impacts on systems, uh, internal processes, um, customer services, consumers. You know, the, the, the whole lot and. That's something that, uh, you know, many fintechs don't necessarily have to consider as they grow and they evolve and they become, you know, as, as, as large as, you know, a, 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 I guess a Monzo Starling or a Revolut, you know, they start to then, you know, think of that world because that's, that's what regulators start to really home in on. But, you know, for the, for the incumbents themselves, it's it's that battleground that they're trying to, 
find a way to align themselves to because on the one hand you've got the the trust and the uh, the, the the robustness of the brand which consumers uh, warm to and, and aspire to but you've got the features and functionality of the uh, uh, you know the emerging fintechs who uh, attract uh, you know huge waves of uh, you know the types of customers they'd like to have right I mean everyone's trying to target more millennials uh, clearly because they become um, you know your, your your more established long-term bankers over a period of time um, and you know, you've got to find the right balance. Um, I think, you know, their thinking and their mindset is definitely right. There's, there's, you know, there is definitely will and desire to do this stuff because I've been in, in more than enough meetings, you know, uh, with banks across the years uh, to to say that. But it, it is just the, the challenges they face to be able to get there. And, and I think that's that's the problem. Um, you know, before, before fintech was a thing, I remember... When I, when I worked at UK Payments way back to the time and, you know, as the digital payments and banking um, explosion was was, was underway, um, you know, there, there was a lot of considerations around some of the security uh, requirements that we'd have to put into the industry. You know, we, we just introduced Chip and Penny, MV, I'm showing my age now, uh, 2012, um, so 2002, sorry, 2012, even, even older. Um, and, you know, the, the focus that, you know, the fraud was going to move online, uh, which was no surprise. And with that, um, the defences you put into play had to think about fraud first and, and probably didn't think enough about um, uh, consumer experience. Uh, and I guess that's where the balance of power has changed over recent years is there's been a lot more focus on consumer experience. And as such, um, you know, fraud, financial crime, I'm not necessarily saying secondary, but it almost becomes embedded as part of that drive to, uh, you know, um, monzoify the world, you know, if that's one way of saying it. You know, there's this real desire to be as slick as, as possible, but still have a reasonably um, robust compliance framework. And they do, you know, they, I mean, they, they, they have done a, done, a, done a lot of good work in getting their compliance set up, um, you know, to, to a good standard. So it, it is that balance, right? It's about trying to, trying to find that that spot you sit in um, to make all these things work um but you know the the pioneers of a lot of this current modern day um um slickness does actually come from many of the banks right i mean the banks were doing a lot of this stuff you know in, in, the, in, in the in the banking and payments world for many years it, it probably just um went, went unnoticed because i think some of the the fintechs probably made made that sort of front and center of their proposition um, whereas for the banks, it just became part of the hygiene. Yeah, no, I think you, you make some really um, good points there. And um, I was also going to add as well, just um, my own opinion on this. I think that there's definitely a discussion to be had around sort of setting up fintech success. Um, you know, I, I read um, a really good report recently um, by Ailing Finn um, or Aizen Finn. Um, I've not actually ever spoken to Aizen, so I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but over at Alt by, she really quickly uh, breaking down the, the regulatory sandbox and the success rates. Um, and she basically said that, um, you know, found that there's a whopping 38% of the cohort from 2018 were just out of business now. So nine of the startups that went into the cohort came out uh, out of business. And I think that you know, these sorts of schemes, the regulatory sandbox schemes by the FCA are designed to kind of almost produce some poster child. So, 
that you know you can see a start that started from the very beginning with the FCA holding its hand and has done very well as, as a result of that. But it doesn't feel like their sandbox schemes have done as well as they perhaps hoped. Um, and then if you look as well at, at the number of fintechs that are being p- produced as well, um, you know, the number of uh, challenger banks cropping up, the number of Series A funding rounds, you know, there are so many startups and fintechs. Um, and I was going to come to to you, Ritten, and ask you what you thought about um, perhaps, you know, the danger that the regulator might feel a little overwhelmed um, by all of these different companies um, sort of sprouting up and then as well trying to keep pace with its sandboxes, which don't seem to be being as effective as as we perhaps sort of they hope they will be. Um, yes, I, I agree, uh, Ruby. And I, I agree with what you just said, because we, uh, as Phonic, you know, have, have clearly had uh, over the years, you know, m- many of the fintechs come through our doors, um, you know, and many of the names that I've mentioned earlier, you know, and, and, and others have interface with us at various um, stages. Um, you know, I, 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 I recall certainly in the early years of Esphonic, you know, we, we had, it was probably, it's probably even worse than I guess uh, than it is now. Um, so many startups who, in the payments world in particular, who felt they were here to disrupt, you know, um, Visa, MasterCard, you know, and, and PayPal, they were, they were going to be the, uh, you know, the big, uh, 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 you know, shining lights of the payment industry and try and fix a problem which didn't really need fixing, in my opinion. But anyway, um, and many of them just, just disappeared, you know, just faded away. Um, I think there's been a, almost a resurgence now um, uh, over the last sort of few years in particular. Um, and, and I was actually on the FCA website the other day looking for um, a particular authorised firm who wanted to do business with us um, and just was surprised and and, and totally uh, myself overwhelmed by the number of uh, organizations who are um, registering for uh, you know uh, payment licenses and 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 you can probably imagine the challenges the SCA have in navigating through all of this stuff and and trying to establish um, which ones you know have the real um, um, you know viability for the longer term but also you know going back to some of the points I made about control frameworks and looking at, um, you know, that sort of regulatory framework and theatre to ensure consumers and, and you know, the financial service system generally is protected. Um, it must be a, a, a minefield. And, you know, the uh, the market's probably got even more complex with crypto firms coming under scope of regulation as well. And, you know, that's a whole new ball game for regulators altogether. Um, so yes, I I, I, I don't envy um, being a regulator currently. I, I've spent you know many years in the industry working with with the FCA and others in in this space. Um, it was it was a bit more simpler in those days because there were only you know so many firms who actually wanted a, a banking or payments license, and you could you know spend your merry time in in getting these organisations uh, authorised. Um, nowadays, I, c- I can imagine it being. Uh, um, you know, like a conveyor belt, you know, of, of, of potential opportunists, which, um, you know, must be a, a, a minefield for them. And I, and I just don't know what the answer is. I think, you know, they're obviously doing their best to have a lot of industry outreach. I think they're doing a lot of expectation setting. Um, they're obviously, you know, starting to turn the screw a little bit on some of the established uh, fintechs, you know, who've 
um, you know, um, sway the line or regulation, shall we say? Um, and uh, you know, that's the message. You know, that 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 tells the potential newcomers to this world that actually, you know, we are going to be taking this seriously. Um, you've only got to see the fallout from the the the, the, the whole debacle of Wirecard and and, and the ripple effect that had. Um, it has to be done, and you know, um, I, I, you know, I, as I said, I don't envy them, and I, and I think all they can keep doing is fighting the good fight and the outreach that they're, you know, that they're doing. Here we are in part three for everybody's favourite section, the fintech jail. This is where we ask for an industry term, buzzword or trend that our guest has had enough of. Uh, we'll then debate between us whether it deserves a place in the jail or if it's already in there, if it needs an extended sentence. Uh, so written, what buzzword or trendy topic do you wish was banished to our fintech folsom? Yeah, I mean, it probably um, borders onto your, 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 your second point around that and, and it's get the uh, extra dimension uh, or a particular buzzword. Um, so. And it's digital identity, which sounds very funny, uh, given what, what we've talked about so far. But um, I think digital identity potentially is horribly you know, misused by any given user at a point in time to be able to um, sell their point uh, or product uh, to a given audience. And in essence, we should round back to what digital identity really does mean uh, and should mean. And that should probably be prefaced with a phrase something like reusable digital identity which essentially is the creation of a digital identity profile through potentially using uh, traditional verification methods and um, aml kyc requirements to create reusable attributes that you can continuously used to set yourself into an enormous range of different environments. And it's a totally different thing to how many I see in the industry are using the word digital identity. So what I would like be, to be put into jail is the um, misuse of the word digital identity. And we need to start talking about reusable digital ID as a technology altogether. That's, yeah, that's a, that's really interesting considering what we were talking about uh, talking about earlier about how it being so hot right now. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think uh, I think I'm with you there. I think that it's uh, it's one of those terms that is becoming it's on the cusp of becoming a buzzword that could be problematic in the, in the near future. Uh, you know, it's sort of like blockchain and AI, especially with the figures being thrown around right now. What? Um, how, how would you rank this in terms of like your your ire at seeing it around? Is it is it something that's still in its early stages? Written? Do you think in in six months to a year we're going to be going? Oh no, not another digital identity firm, uh, or is it something that you want to just you want to just chuck away for life right away to sort of preempt it? Uh, you know, I think we need to start to think about the world of categorization of of technologies in this space. Um, you know, a lot more clearly. So if you take, remember like the fintech world, right? I mean, fintech is a very broad, broad term, but, you know, you, you'll, you'll have, you know, fintech lending, you'll have fintech payments, you'll have fintech banking, for example. Um, and I think the same thing needs to probably apply to regulatory technology. Um, and so whilst you have identity identity verification solutions, 
um, which many get confused or promoted as digital lady products, um, they should be called out for being exactly what they are. Um, and the reason being, as you just highlighted, Alex, that we're, we're soon going to get into a world where we need to get the messaging around digital ID spot on so that all the parties involved in the ecosystem know exactly what it means and how it's used. And I'll tell you why this is important is two things. Um, the first go at digital ID in the UK was back in 2004 or 5, and, and it was under the Blair government where they tried to introduce um, ID cards, as many of you will know. And when I was at APAX, I was uh, involved, many others, as part of multi stakeholder working groups, um, uh, working with the Home Office on, you know, on how do we you know, get this program to work. And because of misinformation, messaging, terminology, uh, and positioning, you know, the, the whole thing fell apart. And, and at the time, the whole framework around what the identity card program and the identity uh, register, which essentially, you know, is going to enable you to create digital IDs, um, presented actually w- would have actually been a very powerful solution today. It would have solved a lot of problems around, uh, you know, fraud, cybercrime, um, social engineering um, in particular. And it would have, you know, streamlined some of these challenges we see with custom onboarding, KYC, which, you know, become this sort of, you know, pain point for many organizations. Um, and so, yes, you know, the, the, the whole thing fell apart. And, and, you know, whilst there's such a momentum around digital ID, we can't let it be hijacked by um, falsehoods around what people think it is and what it should be. And then secondly, um, it's important we get the terminology right for the consumer because we're living in a world of scam, social engineering, APP fraud, et cetera, where consumers are duped into believing whatever they, they, they receive in an email or whatever they receive in a text message and acting on it and potentially having tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of, of, of pounds of hard-earned cash and savings um, totally wiped out of their accounts. And, and, and that's why... I've always been very hot about messaging and categorization and how banks and industry communicate services to the wider industry. And unless we are focused around uh, digital ID, we're, we're going to miss the opportunity. Uh, we're going to lose the consumers who we're going to rely on to in, in enroll and, and enable for the service. Um, and the whole thing will become uh, just another pipe dream. And, and that's why I have such a big bear, bugbear about it. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, I have the honour of being the first uh, uh, judge presiding on this this episode. So I think we'll uh, we'll put it away on probation for at least at least five years. We'll see how it comes out in in twenty twenty six, and then we'll we'll give it another chance. Um, but that, in fact, is uh, is all we have time for for this episode. Um, thanks to Ruby and Written for joining me. But before we sign off, just a quick chance for us to to plug socials, websites projects etc um ruby you can go first uh, yeah sure um thanks alex i will plug my twitter account which i've just got a thousand followers so that's a exciting milestone for me hopefully it doesn't dip below that'll be embarrassing um but you can find me at ruby hinchliff uh, on twitter where i post the majority of my content uh, for fintech futures and then also feel free to find me on linkedin um just search my name ruby hinchliff cheers guys and for me, you can find me on Twitter at, at ADHamilton91 and on LinkedIn by searching my name. And also, we've just released a new report on AI in content management. Please go check that out on the Future Futures website. Um, Ridden, what about you? What have you got to plug? 
Um, well, the good, the good ship Esphonic, um, www.esphonic.com, spelled S-P-H-O-N-I-C.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, at Esphonic, and likewise, um, if you uh, search for Esphonic in LinkedIn, you'll find us there too. Um, we we it, it also can be found with buzzwords such as identity orchestration, which uh, we plan quite a lot as well, which is uh, going back to the world of categorization where we fit. Excellent. And as for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at, at Fintech Futures, and on LinkedIn just by searching Fintech Futures and looking for our logo. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, then please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service. Uh, we also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by writing a review or recommending us to a friend. We'll see you soon for another episode of The Fintech. But until then, goodbye. <laughs>